I'm closing my door and becoming even darker in here. This is so weird. Um, this is so, so. This is the pandemic, huh? All of us just hiding in our closets and basements. <laughs> All right. Yes, and we're we're on we're on uh, a Skype call now with Jack Hit, and uh, he seems prepared for the uh, for the apocalypse. He's sitting in a old Jesuit wine cellar with with a, <laughs> I have to say dwindling supplies. It seems behind you. And I'm Anson Mount. And this is part two of our interview with Jack Hitt, who looked into his crystal ball along with us and prognosticated the future post-corona world. He had a lot of very interesting insights, and we're going to bring you some more right now. Hey, do you remember when we met his college roommate at no. Suwannee? No. So we were there, I think we were there for one of our reunions, and you and I decided to go over and uh, see Dr. Carlos, who is an interesting man in his own right, retired fine, fine arts professor at Swanee. He was probably your advisor, I would imagine. Yeah, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and while we were there, uh, another alum, a bit older than us, stopped in, and we found out that he was Jack Hitt's roommate from college. He, I forget his name. He lives in New Hampshire. Really nice guy. But I, I'll never forget what he said about Jack. He said, that guy, you know, he could sit down and read a book. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't mean sit down to read a book. I mean sit down and read an entire book that he would mm-hmm. have to do a paper on or be tested on, and the next day he could quote you from that book. Wow. Which makes all the sense in the world. It explains his, his instant recall. This has always impressed me about having conversations with him. It's just all, all of these facts are just right at hand. He can just pick up any little detail that he wants, and it's right there. And to be a freelance writer, you have to have a tremendous focus mm-hmm. and discipline, mm-hmm. which clearly he has. So we bring you now back to Jack Hitt's lockdown bunker somewhere in Connecticut and his dwindling supply of wine in his <laughs> Jesuit basement. <laughs> <laughs> I could not compete with the Jesuits, let me just say, for, for, for sheer quantity. When I moved into this house, this cellar was packed with these, you know, ancient um, wooden wine crates from the 1950s and 60s. Let me just say, the Jesuits, I, maybe they practiced chastity and uh, fidelity, but, but poverty? I don't think so. Um, how is um, sheltering in place going for you, Jack? Um, well, I, there is this, this, look, I've been a freelancer all my life. I have worked out of my own solitary office, but I will say that this is a new and advanced form of isolation where kind of the whole week has become this kind of liquid moment that just doesn't seem to end in any way. Um, in part because there's really nothing to break up the day. Uh, anymore. I mean, it's just, it's either solid work or you're in your yard. I mean, there's no human signposts like there used to be. Like, you know, if you went to a restaurant, if you saw a friend on the street, now it's, if you see a friend on the street, of course, now, 
if you're walking your dog or something. It's just this, it's this strange, like 10 foot dance that you do, right? As you greet and, and go through these kinds of distant motions. But those happen maybe once a day or every other day that I encounter somebody that I know. I mean, for the most part, it's my, my wife and my daughter and I in here. Um, it hasn't become the shining yet, not yet, but there are, <laughs> there are moments when I feel like, uh, you know, Jack Torrance is, is writing his novel. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Have you started organizing the words on your pages into geometric shapes? No, but I will say that uh, I have I I now have the cleanest cellar in the neighborhood, which is saying something because we all have clean cellars now. You know, I I the, I I clean when I'm pro- when I'm procrastinating on on something. That's I clean. Right, and we're all procrastinating now excessively. So you know, my yard is planted. We're all going to be neat freaks after this. We're going to have clean, tidy places, everything laid at right angles to each other. And This coronavirus has revealed uh, sort of certain cultural tendencies or preferences that are kind of unnerving, I think, for us Americans. For instance, I saw that in England, when you went to the stores, you know, after about a week, the, the item that was missing from the shelf was tea, like breakfast tea, right? That's what the English were hoarding. In Italy, it was pasta. You couldn't find a box of pasta on any shelf whatsoever. Pasta. Even in Greece, it was feta cheese, right? But in the United States, it was toilet paper. (laughs) What is our problem? (laughs) That is disgusting. I, I mean, I expected it to be bullets. But no, no, not even bullets competed with the toilet paper hoarding that went on for that first 10 days. I don't know what that says about us. I'm, I await the cultural anthropologist to sort of paw through these preferences and, 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 and make some sort of determination. But whatever the conclusion is, it ain't going to be pretty for Americans. That's all. Uh, do you remember <laughs> the uh, Monty Python flying circus with Michael Palin playing the president? And he never said, he's supposed to be addressing uh, the people from the Oval Office, but he never says anything because every time they cut to him, all he's doing is smelling himself and putting on cologne and baby powder, and uh, <laughs> he's just obsessed with uh, having no trace of anything organic happening on him or around him. He has to be like just disinfecting himself constantly. I think the rest of the world does see us that way. I mean, yes. we're, well, we're becoming I mean, something like aware said, of something that everyone else about us has already known. Well, I, I, I think, like I said, I think we revealed ourselves. I, I you know, I, was, I, I saw that there have been lines outside of gun shops and whatnot, but, but as it turns out, they're nothing compared to the lines outside of Costco's toilet paper, you know, aisle. Um, and, and that's a disturbing, disturbing revelation. We, we show ourselves in crisis, and here we are. <laughs> right, right. Well, how do you think, uh, sort of getting to the meat of it, we were sort of prognosticating about, you know, how life is going to be different after all of this. Yeah, it, it, I've always been amazed at the how an economy represents a, or it resembles a living organism. You know, it has to, it has to keep moving. The the inertia has to keep moving forward, or it dies. The blood has to keep flowing, and in a way, it feels like, you know. 
our mm-hmm. not just us individually, but the larger hive represented by our economy has got this virus too. Right, and of course you've seen. I mean, you know, one of the one of the few memes that's popped up on the on the uh, you know all throughout Twitter is that you know we're the virus, really, right? And 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 our retreat from the planet, um, just sitting still, right, has caused all of these massive beneficial side effects, right, from fish stocks suddenly reemerging now that boats are out on the water, or even even like strange little things like did you see that item that the pandas that in hong kong they've been waiting for them to mate for 10 years they haven't mated and then they just did right and you'd think like well why 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 did that happen and apparently the reason is is because we just left them alone for two weeks <laughs> yeah. It wasn't anything about the virus. It was just that, like, humans quit looking at them. <laughs> that is why they had sex. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, right. You know, we are, you know, our entire economy was built on the fact that we just all ran around a lot and did stuff, you know, mm-hmm. tourism and, and looked at things. And so all these animals in the zoos and even even out in the wild, apparently ornithologists are reporting that like people are birding on college campuses now because no one's there. And so all of a sudden all these birds have appeared, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and I know you've seen these maps of like the hot spots in China have, you know, these uh, nitrogen or I mean, so carbon uh you know, the the images of where carbon is or where other sort of nitrogen-based sort of pollutants are um, have all disappeared. And maybe they'll come back, of course, you know, once the factories get up and running. But but uh, even like the canals of Venice are visible. Swans have returned there. Fish are swimming in the canals. The water is clear. But it's not because the pollution has disappeared. It's because we have disappeared. And there's no boats churning the water and frightening off all this wildlife. It's really this this new quiet that has descended on the planet that has created these this this moment for us to see what the world looks like when we're not busy stomping through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. speaking of, one of the coolest things that I read recently was a, an article in the Atlantic uh reporting all these seismologists all over the planet are reporting that literally the earth is less seismically active, that it's right. it's quieted <laughs> down, which is no right. surprise, right? But then the fact right. that that can register on a, on a, on a Richter scale is kind of amazing. Right. right. I, I, saw, I saw one of those reports out of Brussels that like apparently there's just a regular rumble and hum on the surface of the planet from us just stomping around all the time and rolling in trucks and cars and planes and everything else, and that that hum has disappeared. And so they can hear things below the surface now that they haven't heard for decades. Y'all know where I'm going with this because I keep bringing it up, but uh, uh, Chernobyl, you know, is is this fantastic, fantastic experiment. (laughs) (laughs) And all it took was just to, you know, make us go away for a while, the whole, that whole uh, containment area, Wildlife is booming, which means that our presence is much more toxic to life than the radiation was. That's 
says one of the worst things I've ever heard about <laughs> our species. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to tell you what I, I did this story years ago for the New York Times where I, I went into the jungles of Cambodia and Thailand uh, to to report about how the Khmer Rouge, the the murderous you know uh, army from uh, from Cambodia, had been repurposed into park rangers because the new problem in the jungles was poaching. Okay. And so the Khmer Rouge murderers had now been, you know, gotten new arm patches and, <laughs> but still had their guns. And off into the jungle we went. We spent two weeks in the woods, but I did with these guys. And, um, and one of the things that some of the, the, the sort of animal specialists that were with us, it was an elephant person and a tiger guy. And, and uh, one of the things they said was that, you know, that actually the last couple of decades of war had been really beneficial for the wildlife. Um, why? Because wars, when, when you have war, there's just a handful of people in the jungle. But when you don't have war, then everybody is stomping through there. It's really just the regular stomping of human, you know, sort of culture, uh, like, like what you're saying, Brandon. You know, the, the, you know, in Chernobyl, we just pulled out. Just daily life ended, right? We've all seen those pictures of the school desks still sitting there with their books open and whatnot in Chernobyl. But, but even war does that. So, like, yeah, war, radioactivity are better for wildlife than just normal human conduct. <laughs> but, I mean, anyone who's walked – I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the woods and uh, same thing when you go scuba diving. Animals give you a very wide berth, you know? Like, they don't want to be anywhere near us. And uh, you have to sit still for a very, very, very long time, sometimes days – before they start to even come back out of, you know, creep back out again and feel safe. And just imagine that we're applying that downward pressure everywhere 24-7. So, I mean, there is this kind of like, you know, it's people, when they talk about the the clouds of pollution, you know, they talk about the, the shutdown of, you know, of factories and the fact that cars aren't, you know, pumping out all this carbon and so on every day. But, you know, the real news is that we're just not stomping around as much as we used to. Um, and that's even bigger than the cars in the factories. You know, the, the, the side effects of just us not constantly staring at the pandas, not stomping through the woods, um, and not rattling the Earth's surface in this way that basically silences all of the subtle, you know, sounds of of, of nature. That 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 in fact is is this, you know, it's 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 kind of like there's a big moment of, for reflection for humans as we sit quietly and think about basically all the noise and um, you know, and tumult that we make just in our daily lives. And how much of that will we get to keep? As a result of like, you know, working at home and not driving as much and not getting on the Metro North and the trains as often and not getting on the planes as often. I mean, um, I mean, that that might be the positive side of that. I mean, there are there are now already sort of hints at the dark side of that. So, for instance, can I just throw out one thing? Um <clears throat> We keep talking about social isolation and physical distancing. You know, that apparently that's like one of the leading causes of death is social isolation. Right. People being alone. It's it's a it's an incredible killer, right? So um they know that like among older people, um, social isolation knocks off about I just looked it up for you, twenty-nine percent of older people, the, the increase in mortality 
comes from just loneliness of being left alone. So, I mean, this is the other problem is that humans, we're, we're herd animals. Yeah, we want herd immunity, but that's because we're, we really are herd animals. We want mm -hmm. our friends and we want to be able to hug them. And that, that is really <laughs> this huge obstacle to, to this, whatever new world we're about to step into. Um, is that the the cure for this disease may be may be um, may have other side effects that are that are completely unintentionally devastating, which is mm -hmm. just loneliness, you know. I mean, how many Zoom meetings can we all put up with, you know? I mean, there's a thing called Zoom fatigue. That's already a phrase. Have you heard that? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so people are exhausted with this uh, this uh, digital life already. It's only been 10 days, two weeks, and already we're burnt out. <laughs> there is a reason that, that many countries consider, um, uh, what's the term, uh, solitary confinement to be torture. Because if someone spends enough time in solitary confinement, they literally lose their minds. They they go schizophrenic because we are social animals. We need each other as a framework for who we are. Right. We're not just social. We're not just social animals. We are hyper, hyper social animals. That's our whole bag is being social, which is why I don't think <laughs> that uh, I'm a little, I don't know if I'm being naive here, but why I don't think that things like restaurants and uh, you know movie theaters shutting down they're going to come back. I don't know when, but I think that we just need it too badly. I, I think that we, people will start taking the risk, um, and there might be some consequences for that. But I don't think that we—I don't think we can handle it. I don't think we can handle Zoom meetings and Skype calls for the rest of our lives. I think we're going to decide that we want the social. We value the socialization more. I think that could actually be a very beautiful thing too, because I think people. One thing that's going to come out of all of this is a reprioritization of you know what is important in life, and having social, having having our social options limited like this, I think is going to make us realize how important they were. I think we totally took that for granted. Uh, we've never had a social distance before, and uh, and guess what? We don't like it. And I think <laughs> and, and and I think and I think we're going to uh, reprioritize. Uh, uh, healthcare workers. I think the idea of who is, uh, I've already seen people calling for parades for healthcare workers. Uh, that's such an interesting shift in priority. I'm seeing mm -hmm. a lot of people value things very differently than they were just three or four weeks ago. Uh, uh, healthcare workers are heroes now. Your pizza delivery guy is a hero, right? That's going to be, I, I, and I think we're going to start to realize, and I've seen this meme being passed around a lot too. Um, Guess who's not helping us right now? The 1%, the billionaires. Like maybe our fascination and hero worship of those people will be revealed to be what it is, just kind of a, a scam. Oh, they've they've cashed out and flown to their bolt holes in uh in New Zealand mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, Peter Thiel is right. in his bunker. <laughs> right. He's not out right. reinventing the world, apparently. No, no. No, I was in the grocery store the other day, and the guy uh, ahead of me in the line uh, turned to the cash register and thanked him for his service. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, okay. That's the world we live in now. 
which I think is which I think is wonderful. As, uh, to me, that's one of the more yeah. positive things that's come out of this is realizing who is an essential worker anyway. And this experiment yeah. is forcing those people to sort of uh, become more visible. And now we suddenly realize, well, what? How am I going to get my Indian food? <laughs> this is an emergency. <laughs> Let's go back for a second to the, these environmental changes. Uh, you said something uh, on our phone call yesterday about this being a, something that might kickstart uh, the Green New Deal, and suddenly what seemed like just sort of a uh, sort of almost a fantasy, people are start looking at a little more seriously. Oh yeah, like um, you know, one thing that I saw was that um, uh, 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 there could be some wholesale changes that will have some environmental impact, you know, uh, coming out of this that are going to be irreversible. So, for instance, apparently fossil fuel, you know, oil companies, they have a really hard time with with what's happening right now, which is, you know, the prices prices for oil have plummeted. You know, their profit margins are, have disappeared, right? But But they have a really hard time maintaining supply lines during hard times and maintaining their businesses during hard times. But you know who do not have that trouble? Mm-hmm. Wind and solar. Mm-hmm. Because right. most of the costs for wind and solar power are the upfront capitalization of putting the plant together. Operating, no problem. So they're not really suffering uh-huh. right now the way oil is. Right. And so this may be one of those moments where you see this huge business shift in uh, we may be moving out of oil. This might be the the hinge moment where I think we're now at about 20 percent wind and solar. But, you know, in, in five years, it may be a lot more just because the companies that were able to profit and 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 sustain themselves through this bad time. Right. Are um, are wind and solar. Um, so that's one big one. If that were to happen, that would change a lot of things. And then, you know, look, if, if car consumption goes down and planes, planes become much more, uh, sort of occasional, you know, um, transportation uses, then, then you have a whole other, uh, problem for the oil companies, right? Is that they no longer have buyers or as many buyers as they used to have. I mean, all of those companies were based on growth curves, so if we have, you know, uh, the opposite, that that's hard for them. It's not hard for wind and solar, um, and that's not, not that's not just pipe dreaming or you know, no, that I'm I'm getting that from the front pages of the Wall Street Journal. You know, so those are those are hardcore business people talking about the sustainability model for profit making wind and solar companies, right? Um, and I think there's other, you know, the other. I think there are obvious things that are that have already changed. Like um, I saw that Trump wanted to put a, a bunch of uh, a bailout money in that first bill for the cruise industry. Then people started pointing out that, well, none of these cruise ship companies are American companies, right? And they don't pay taxes and they don't employ Americans. They employ mostly Caribbean and Filipino workers. And most of the owners of these companies are just friends of Trump's. So why is the American taxpayer bailing out? these non-American, non-American employing companies, right? So mm-hmm. that, you know, been sidelined for now. But who would get on a cruise ship now? I mean, do you have any grandmothers that are getting on cruise ships right now? I, or, or will they ever get back on a cruise ship? I, I can't imagine any normal human who has 
live through this is going to climb into the big petri dish of the carnival cruise line so anyway yeah i mean i mean i think i think there's some businesses that are finished and then i think there's some that you know and, and a lot of them have these really terrible carbon footprint um you know histories um and we'll see. We'll see what 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 pops out on the other side. But I, I like just look at those two, and those those are huge, right? Yeah, I think I think you're right about the. I, I think that uh, art is so much of gathering together to to watch art. I think theaters will come back in some form. I think dining together is too important to us as a species. I think we'll find some way to do that again. But I think the Carnival cruise lines are going to be these big cruise ships are, are probably are finished. I, I agree with that. Or maybe when everyone gets their own floor. <laughs> the carnival cruise <laughs> stays very far from each other. Do you know about that billionaire cruise ship? I don't know if it's still floating out there, but there was a cruise ship that uh, where everyone had their own, you know, massive suite, um, and it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and you never got off. It was a tax evasion uh, scheme. There was a story about it a few years ago. So you just cruised around and went and visited cities, but you never stopped cruising. Right. That was the. That was the tax evasion thing. Hey, I wonder, Anson, do you think, um, I mean, you know, theater began as an outdoor business, right? I mean, Greek theater was right. an outdoor fair, Roman mm. theater was. And I just wonder, like, maybe the Delacorte in Central Park will have a resurgence, sort of like the drive-in movie theaters. Maybe we'll get back to kind of old school, you know, um, half-shell amphitheater um, productions where you know, the audience can feel rather comfortable out there on the grass, right? I think that would be wonderful. I, I think that um, we're likely to see lots of changes in, in the theater, including uh, the union's relationship with the producers, mm. um, obviously, obviously budgets, uh, I think could force us into a more Brechtian dir direction, <laughs> where there were stripping away yeah. all the accoutrement, right. all the big mm -hmm. sets, all the big lighting arrays, which I actually think is very healthy for the theater right. to to get down to its nuts and bolts and right. really exercise that 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 uh, muscle that is the suspension of disbelief. Um, I think it could lead to. Uh, it sounds very robust to say a new era of theater, but it could. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of that or Orson Welles story. Remember when his um, play was banned, I think, and he and John Hausman, I think was involved. They, they, they took a piano and wheeled it down the street to a warehouse and everybody, I think, I think the thing was they couldn't, certain actors couldn't appear on stage. And so they were in the audience they just put all the actors in the audience and the actors would stand up and just say their lines from the from the audience. Mm. This is this sort of famous sort of anti-censorship story. Um, but it but it reacquainted everybody with what theater is, right? Right. I mean, yeah. we we were so deep into the Lion King, you know, spectacular. Um, you know, we yeah, you know what I mean? It, who is who is going to pay the thousands of dollars to fly their family? to New York to stay in Times Square and pay hundreds of dollars per ticket for right. theater anymore. It's done. Right. Uh, I, I really hate to think of what Times Square is going to look like in a year. And uh, all of that resurgence 
that we had in the 90s, where I literally saw all of those theaters go from being shuttered uh, porn theaters. They had, in the heyday, they were they were theater theaters, the big chorus line theaters. And then right. in the era of the 70s, you know, they'd all mm-hmm. been converted over to triple X theaters and then they got shuttered and they were empty and crime was terrible. And then there was this New York Renaissance and I, I'm worried that that's all lost, but it's not just about New York. It's, it's about, it's about, it's about Mm -hmm. theater. The beautiful thing about theater is you need, Peter Brooks said this, you need one person to be looking at an empty space and another person to walk through it for theater to happen, <laughs> you know? And I, I'm hoping that we're going to start to rediscover that and maybe theater will start getting out of the cities a little bit more. I think that would be very healthy for us. Well, remember, we also used to complain about uh, what was happening to New York theater, right? This might... yeah. You know, this is what they call creative destruction, right? We get rid of uh, the Disneyfication of mm-hmm. uh, all the theaters in Times Square, which no one liked, uh, anyone in theater anyway. It was just kind of abysmal and sad uh, to watch. Now, are people, are those same theaters going to be filled with one person walking across a, an empty stage? I don't know. <laughs> but well, I, can I tell think you what this. Anson is saying, Brandon, is that, is that the the return of the 1950s in all these other guises will happen in Times Square too. And we'll, we'll go back to those porn theaters. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can't tell you this, wh- whether it happens in one of those, those theaters after it's closed down or it happens in the suburbs, I highly doubt that the material of choice will be Shrek the musical. Right. That's, that's right. not what you're going to want to want to be working on. Uh, because it, it's 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 a Frankenstein, um, mm-hmm. you know those mm-hmm. those kinds of shows, and the the overhead demands are so extreme. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm hoping that this is going to uh, help us rediscover uh, what we think of as classical theater. Yeah, I, that's what I, that's what I was trying to say about um, <clears throat> you know about uh, the Orson Welles story is right. that you know we 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 guild all the aspects of theater, you know, up to the most spectacular, you know, presentations possible, forgetting that, of course, at the, at the nub of it all is, is, is human emotion, like on display, right in front of us, you know, it's like the Aristotelian, you know, tragic virtues, you know, that we, we, we're there to, to be close to this, this raw human emotion, um, and we've dressed it up so much now that it's, uh, you know, it, it becomes incredibly distant. And then I think when you get to real, when you when you stumble upon a really great piece of what you call classical theater, right? Like the way Orson Welles did and John Hausman did, um, everybody is everybody is suddenly stunned. It's like, oh, right. This is why we go to the theater. Right. right. Not to see a flying <laughs> Spider-Man, um, you know, or a chitty, chitty, bang, bang car sail across the audience. <laughs> right. Right. As cool as that may be. Right. Yeah. There's this right. other reason that we're going there. And it's always good to get back in touch with that. So, yeah. 
Maybe that'll be the maybe that. But of course, I I I I'm haunted by one of the first things that Brandon said, which is that eh, we'll probably just go back to the way things were. You know, <laughs> you know, we're gonna have to run this experiment three or four times before we get the essential meaning, right? Um, and that probably is the case. <laughs> I think that there's a reason why we invented, you know, uh, flying cars for movie theaters and try to make it look more like cinema. There's something in us that wants that and will our priorities will shift for a little bit and go back to human emotion then decide decide eventually we want to see the flying cars again because <laughs> i think there's something in us that i don't know but that is satisfied with that is still amazed by that um one of the things that that's true we were talking about uh you know shifts in priorities i just read something somewhere that, and i hope this is true this might be a silver lining that we may start listening to experts again hmm I don't know. I don't know. That that's a big that's a big thing, <laughs> Out of all the things that we've been talking about that are you could be that could very well be science fiction, that's the one that is the most <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Listening to experts. So so we're just going to stick with uh, what's emotionally comforting, you think, instead of what's uh, uh instead of instead of experts. I'm that's sad. That's really sad because I I do know that once this whole thing is you know the worst of it's over, you know I mean half the country is going to say see it was all hype we didn't have to social distance and hunker down not realizing that that's why it wasn't as bad as it could have been, so I yes it's true that we don't learn uh, clearly <laughs> demonstrated lessons very well, uh, but I don't know that's that's my hope. It's also happening. I mean, the 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 prayer for a return to uh, you know expert opinion is happening at a time when, you know, the internet has fractured our ability to to even obtain simple truth from you know media sources. Right? Did you see that story the other day that some guy diverted a train, crashed a train, uh, at the docks in the hopes of stopping this hospital ship from coming to town? He was convinced that the hospital ship was some kind of evil, you know, democratic uh, conspiracy to infect people. Um, and he literally derailed a train car uh, in the hopes of crashing into this boat at port um, and stopping. The, it's, it's, it was the equivalent of like the Pizzagate thing where the guy showed up at that pizza parlor mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C., convinced that Hillary Clinton was abusing infants in the basement. I mean, people have have access to completely gonzo Alex Jones level nonsense of information and 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 it arrives in a form that that they find super credible and they believe it so even if the experts have these opinions uh, you know one of the big shifts is going to be how we as a culture use our various media platforms and outlets to understand what is really true from these experts because at this point it's you know the 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 old school media control the new york times cbs news you know the old television and you know three television stations and you know a handful of newspapers basically were the dour you know purveyors of truthful information and as tedious as it might have been at least we got mostly you know scientific enlightenment era kind of information from them but we're now in this kind of shattered uh 
moment when information arrives, you know, through tweets and Instagrams and, you know, TikTok and everything else. And, um, you know, our ability to shape the world around us to fit our prejudices is mm. phenomenal. And probably not since the Middle Ages has there been um, a better time to mold reality into superstition. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was just saying the other day, I was just saying that you're right. I was just saying the other day that, um, uh, you know, now the new thing, for the people that are find different ways of denying that this is happening, it was a democratic hoax, um, some sort of an attempt to take away your freedom or declare martial law or something. And now that these numbers are getting, uh, are everywhere, and most most media outlets are reporting similar sort of numbers, now the new dodge is oh well they're counting uh every death you know they're not saying that uh, these aren't coronavirus deaths or not all of them there's just there's always some way to deny what's directly in front of you yeah although the coronavirus has made it hard for the conspiracy theorists because the virus is hard it, it is a form of harsh cold reality and doesn't really uh it doesn't really uh you can't really maw maw the virus. You can't really gaslight the virus. You can't really convince the virus of of what of what is not true, right? So, for instance, I, I was I, I saw on on Twitter somebody was uh, somebody had posted that um, you know that that it was a Democratic hoax, and um, and someone had followed up by saying like, how did the Democrats convince Boris Johnson to go into the intensive care unit? <laughs> <laughs> We're getting it kind of off the topic into a whole other issue of you know why conspiracy theories exist, but some right, people right. I think as you said you know yes the virus is apolitical the virus just does what it does that's the sort of chaos that conspiracy folks do not like they would rather there be a malevolent force orchestrating all of this than just random you know the universe being indifferent and uncaring that's much it's, worse it's, than I think it's there's a I think that uh, there is a similarity between that and why people are hoarding toilet paper. Oh, good. We're going full circle. Is because <laughs> it gives you a sense of control over, over the uncontrollable, whether that is a virus or that is um, potentially a dead-end career or, you know, the uh, human condition as it exists in the middle and lower middle class of America um, – this idea of you can't fool me, man, is right. very attractive. I've got you figured out, and I may have no job, but my bum is clean. <laughs> right. Uh, and, right. The, and the Brits are like, well, you know, I don't have a job, but at least I have a nice hot cup of, of English blend tea, you know? Right. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, no, it's weird that, like, the, the obvious scientific – enlightenment era explanation of what happened here that the wet markets of Wuhan where people were you know cutting open pangolins and other you know wildlife critters for for consumption um that the virus made the you know leap there into us and devastated Wuhan which would certainly argue against the Chinese deploying this as a biological weapon by using it first on themselves, right? <laughs> right? But you, and, and then, you know, and then of course it, 
it spreads very easily because people are infectious without knowing that they're sick. That's different from other mm -hmm. viruses that we've dealt with. So that makes it particularly dangerous, right? It's harder to track and do all that stuff. Um, but, you know, that explanation, wet markets into Wuhan, pops out, hits the world. You know, that's a perfectly legitimate scientific epidemiological explanation of what happened here. But no, 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 no. We have to turn it into a James Bond plot in mm. order for, you know, it to make sense to certain people. Um, yeah, I don't get that, but but that that is the world we live in now. Uh, for the people who are asymptomatic, are they, you know, for how long are they contagious if you're asymptomatic, I suppose is the question. We don't know. We don't know. And, and we don't know. Um, and, and that's part of the problem is that, um, and we know that like a lot of people get it and have barely show any symptoms. And mm -hmm. so, you know, maybe, maybe by midsummer we'll have enough herd immunity that the disease will just start to peter out. And then, and then of course we'll, we'll learn nothing from it or we'll learn the wrong lesson from it and move forward and, and crank back up with our, um, you know, our, our, <laughs> our rattled uh, earth surface. But, um, <laughs> hey, I did want to throw out one possible, one one thing I noticed that I, uh, one benefit from this is that um, all those all those preachers who heal people on TV of incurable diseases, yeah, yes. they're all in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> So let's, uh, let's count our blessings. It's the small things in life you should you should treasure, and and that's one of them right there. <laughs> I see. Did you see this thing? Kenneth Copeland is apparently mm -hmm. healing people of the coronavirus through the television. Oh, they used to do that. Who was doing it? Kenneth Copeland. Yeah, I believe is is who's doing it. Yeah. Right. Although I did see Copeland on TV recently, he wasn't he wasn't healing anybody. He was praying away the devil. But I noticed that he was alone on the stage, and uh, and his henchmen were at least ten feet away from him. So even though they can <laughs> even though they can cure cancer, uh, typically they they weren't they weren't going to mess with the coronavirus. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah. So we're 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 a better people now. All right, you guys, that was fun. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, really Thanks appreciate it. On. Thank you so much. Sure thing. Take care. Yeah, okay, thanks. we'll be in touch then. Take care. All right, y'all. Right, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Special thanks for this episode goes to Jack Hitt for spending some time to talk to us from his Jesuit wine cellar bunker and uh, prognosticate with us. We really appreciate it, Jack. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Myberg and performed by Brandon Edgens. Please take care of yourself and each other, and we'll all get through this. Have a good week.